Hello, welcome to Unofficial Partner, the Sports Business Podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Charlie Sale is a legend of sports journalism and in some ways helped create the genre of sports news, most famously as the feared and fearless writer of the Daily Sports Agenda column in the Daily Mail and before that in The Express. Charlie was one of our early guests on the podcast following his retirement due to ill health in 2018. So it's great to have him back to talk about his new book, which is in true Charlie Sale style, already ruffling feathers in the corridors of sport. It's called The Covers Are Off, Civil War at Lords, and it's about the two decades old dispute over the future development of the home of cricket between the MCC and Charles Rifkind, the property developer who acquired the rights to develop the defunct railway tunnels that lie beneath the ground's nursery end. It's about cricket and sports business, but it's also about class and politics and the often painful balance between preserving the traditions of the past in a fast-changing modern world. We'll put a link to the book in the show notes of this podcast. And if you like the pod, you'll love the unofficial part in the newsletter that goes direct to the inbox of thousands of senior executives across the global sports business every Thursday. To join them, sign up via unofficialpartner.com. Here is Charlie Sale. <laughs> it's no Richard Gillis operation. <laughs> It's not the it's not the slick operation of unofficial partner. You're a different gravy, isn't it? Uh, unofficial partner. <laughs> so, just to set this up, we're going to talk about your new book. We've had the conversation about Charlie Sale, the career in journalism. Yeah. That was one of our biggest, yeah. most popular podcasts to date, actually, Charlie. One of the early ones. Delighted about. It. But let's just talk about this book then. So, let's explain what it is first of all, and then I've got a few questions about it. Actually, going back to that uh, podcast I, d- I did with you a couple of years ago, I think I said during that that I just started on this project and it was secret yeah. at the time, and that was over two years ago, and it came to fruition and it was published on May 26th. It's taken two years, and basically it tells the story of the sort of toxic row over two decades between the MCC and a property developer, Charles Rifkin, who wanted to develop the wall at the end of the, the nursery end of the ground, which is now a prison wall, as it's called. And he stole the, well, he didn't steal, he won the rights to develop the tunnels under the, that wall from the MCC at an auction in 1999. I mean, the MCC thought they were the only bidders in town. Obviously, it was on their property. They didn't think that there was a development possibility. They only saw the lease value. The network rail, or rail track, or British Rail, whatever they were called at the time, were selling off the tunnels, their head leasehold to the tunnels, because uh, since the beaching cut, no, the trains were no longer going through two of those tunnels. And they're great Victorian things, massive aircraft hangar style area. And Charles Rifkin saw the potential of uh, developing. And what's happened over the last 20 years is he's come up with loads of different ideas, and the MCC keep blocking them. What is staggering is that um, the MCC have got 18,000 members and the majority of these people, this is a totally new story because that's the way the MCC operate. And what hasn't been fair, it's all very well if they had a proper vote and the MCC decided not to, they didn't want development, residential development nursery, and that, that's quite fair enough. But there's never, it hasn't been so far a level playing field because they never allowed Charles Rifkin to work with the MCC to come up with a plan that suits them both. 
we're talking massive amounts of money here. Probably the MCC's value would be upwards of £150 million, which would allow them to be an independent organisation as the guardians of law, the guardians of cricket. Whilst at the moment they have to go cap in hand to the ECB for two tests a summer to make their finances work. With £150 million in the bank, they could um, be far more aloof from having to haggle with the ECB. Obviously, they still have test matches there, but they would have a certain amount of independence, which they haven't got now. What is sad is even after the coronavirus, which sort of decimated the MCC finances, Charles Rifkin's offer was still on the table, but they didn't even consider it. Instead, to alleviate the money they've lost, they just sold went back to the same old thing they've used throughout their history and sold off a, a load of live memberships. So that's where we are at the moment with the opening of the Compton Edrich stand. Not the opening, but the test match just finished. A uh, few spectators were allowed in. And this stand is basically the MCC's answer to, to Charles Rifkin. And it's basically a, out of spite and a tactical move, as they admit in the book, because the footprint of this stand goes back onto the nursery end ground, which means that when cricket or first-class cricket which they say they still want to do, resumes, the boundary rope will have to be right at the end, up against the wall, obviously meaning that residential is far more difficult on that wall. I think Lords is, I think, probably my favourite sports stadium, sports ground. And I've, over the years, both professionally, but also personally, really enjoyed being there. But if people don't know Lords as intimately as all that you've got the famous old pavilion at one end and then you've got at the other end you've got what was at the time a quite controversial modern media center that sprung up at the nursery end and then they've just had two new stands so the the Compton and Edridge stands and then what we're talking about here is behind those stands is a nursery ground which is club cricket is played on it it's a small ground but then there's also the ECB headquarters back there and there's some indoor nets indoor school and a conference area and we're talking about that area there are we at the end absolutely we're talking right up amongst the wall so nothing like you wouldn't even uh, be able to see what was happening there from if you were sitting in the pavilion because the stands would block it out depending how big the residential walls are yes that's at the very end which at the moment if you look down the Wellington Road it looks strange that that wall there, there's no development along it because you've got a hospital at one side and you've got a hotel at the other. And what is also would have been a big bonus of, of the development is that the hospital would have come in with loads, millions of pounds, hundreds of millions of pounds to be part of the development because the tunnels were perfect for operating, operation with the thick walls of radio, radiotherapy, whatever. And they would have come in partnership with MCC and with Charles Rifkin. It would have been a decent marriage of of, of ideas and, and uses if it, if it was to happen. And it didn't. I was trying to get to the jeopardy in the book, and I think you've you've outlined it there at the beginning. In terms of the, this is a load of money that the MCC could have had, which would have sustained them. Let's talk talk about the MCC for a minute, because again, I've got a view of the MCC, but I'd like it just put in context for listeners what does the mcc do what's it i know it owns lord's ground but what's its role well so they've got various roles which is part of the problem they've got they're a private members club they're in charge of the rules of the game they also host the most iconic lord's ground so with a public face so they're private members club with a massive public face and they run they keep saying that they're modernizing all the time 
but they're still totally committee ru- committee run. And that was the problem with throughout this time. You had the one side, this property developer, who wants like decisions yesterday, and the MCC who say, "Oh, we've got to go to this committee, that committee. We'll get back to you in five months' time." And that's a problem. That's a problem. And also, it's self-perpetuating. The MCC members at the time, over twenty years ago, who lost out on the tunnels. Yeah, this is probably the biggest mistake in the history of a club that's over two hundred years old. So they, some of them, didn't want to do. Their business with Charles Rifkin at any price, whatever, because they're embarrassed about the whole thing. And this same kind of attitude, because of the way the MCC works, the same people hold the same positions for years on end. They're either a trustee or a chairman of a subcommittee, then a president, then a treasurer, the same old people. And not only the same old people, they're similar people, and their ideas that they had carried on. Charles Rifkin's dealt with chief executives and different chairmen and different presidents, different committee members, but basically it's the same people still saying no. They don't have to say yes. It's, it's up to, uh, you know, if they don't want residential and they don't think it's right for lords, then a lot of people think that. They don't want the ambience of lords. You've mentioned it's your favourite ground and the sort of views. They don't want flat uh, residential flats, however well they're, they look, at their special ground. So, but... You'd think that they could at least have had a proper conversation. I and mean, that's the source. That's a scandal. Who is Charles Rifkind? Property developer who comes, a very successful property developer who lives in St John's Wood. He's responsible for some massive developments around around London and outside London. His latest one is, is in Matlock's Bar, which is building a whole new sort of village of, of new houses in the Peak District. So he's a successful guy and he had some successful people backing him and plenty of money behind him. And he he saw, saw the value of this and, and how it could be a sort of a fantastic project that would open up Lords. Because his sort of thing was that a lot of people who supported him, including people like Sir John Major, Lord Grabener, Sir Simon Robertson, Simon Elliott, some big captains of industry and, and big lawyers and big QCs, that down that prison wars it called if you open up that vista rather than the wall which stands for do not come in you would open up mm. cricket you might see kids going down there so oh, one day i'd like to play on that ground rather than the, what it the session it gives at the moment that you can't come in this is you know nothing to do with you you know keep out you mentioned one of the cliches or the truisms of the mcc it's, it's incredibly white it's incredibly affluent mm. membership it's very exclusive but it's exclusive in a very old money, posh British way. Mm. Does Charles is Charles Rifkin from that milieu, or is he seen as an outsider? Is there a class thing going on here, or is he just one of them? Hundred percent. Not only that, he's seen as a North London property developer, and, and all that entails, and that includes sort of plenty of anti-Semitism was around that. So, so we do certain episodes in the book which is blatantly anti-Semitic. anti-Semitic. No, he's very much, let's say, new money. He's totally not old money. Again, it's a classic English sort of battle between old and new money. You summed it up in, the, in, in that respect. He certainly doesn't come from that background whatsoever. There's a bit of a tension in the club. I read Mirad Ahmed's piece in the FT, which covered a bit of this ground a, a few months ago, and he's been on the podcast. But the point being that there is a... I think probably as a result of the row that you're talking about or the, the, the mistake or the decision that they then brought in these life memberships, which some have seen as a new money, old money 
fault line going on where you've got people who are rich and they're in the, they've come from the city for example they're traders and the old money in the shires and the tweed set they don't like that new entry into the club and there's a bit of that running beneath that and then the life memberships were a sort of response to covid but also to the to the mistake well, absolutely as you say but well, it's needs must as far as city bankers and i think they'd take anybody's money in respect uh, as far as that was concerned but certainly as far as the sort of the club and the way it's it's seen as white anglo-saxon and as i was there two or three days through the test and unfortunately there's very few black people around at all i think like a lot of things they're trying to change but you know they're not changing very fast they should fast track uh, a lot more black people onto the mcc and a lot more women, a lot more people of, you know, different ethnic backgrounds. So you get a far more diverse, diverse look about the club, which you certainly don't get at the moment. But as far as the life memberships concerned, they had various choices. The one they could have taken up Charles Rifkin's offer, which they didn't even consider. I think they spent 25 minutes before it was dismissed to committee meeting. They could have loaned money from the bank. Or they could have, or they go down the life membership route, which which they're very pleased about. They got twenty five million pounds from three hundred and thirty nine new members, so it shows that shows how iconic in some ways. I don't think any other club in the world could have raised so much money in such a way so successfully. It shows the allure of lords, and obviously you feel like so a lot of people who didn't want to speak to me and cricketers like three of them, especially Angus Fraser, Mike Gatting, Mike Brearley, who totally against anything that changes their their view of lords as this sort of place where they spent all you know their cricketing years they don't want it to change but things have to change well it's peculiar because actually i think what they've done at the nursery end around this the i haven't seen in person the new uh, stands but that was quite a radical media center they put up and i felt it worked in terms of you can't just be in the past and and so the sort of paradox really is that there is modern thinking in some of the architecture that they're adding to the ground it's always going to be difficult you can't keep something in sepia forever so it does have to evolve and they obviously have to raise the number of people who can get into the place but that seems seems odds in terms of the, this refusal to to deal with this guy yeah it's a, it's a very good point the media center as you say was very startling for the lords at the time but funny enough it was the building of that which went six, five or six million uh, more than they thought it would cost them, which meant they didn't have the money to bid for the tunnels. They only had the, the lease, had leasehold of the tunnels. So they only bid 2.2 million when, because basically because of the debts of the media centre. As you say, also, as you say, the architecture at Lords is really good. But personally, these comp- there's, there's two new stands. They're not nearly as good, I think, as, as the Morley plan, which was. The, the latest Rifkin thing, which the members turned down in 2017. If you, I don't know how much you've seen of it, Richard, but there's no proper stand on the roof. So you, because of coronavirus, although I was a member, I had to sit in the lower the lower Compton stand on the first day of the test. Literally, I think I lasted two or three overs because the sun was sort of beating down on you. And I might have been privileged, very privileged, watch the cricket from air-conditioned press boxes uh, for most mm-hmm. of my life, but it's pretty unpleasant with the sun beating down on you all day and, and, and no shelter whatsoever. They're too big. I think they've been particularly greedy. I don't, I don't know when they're going to fill. I'll be very interested to see if it's totally full for the India test. Uh, there's some there's some seats at the top 
towards the top of the side with no no cover whatsoever. You'll be right in the sun all day. Um, interesting if they actually do fill them all. They had a far more look that comes in with the media centre. I thought the Morley plan to lect with lectern style roofs would have been far better. But the MCC are very proud of the continental stands, as they keep on saying in various interviews that Guy Lavender people have given over the last week. They've got Claire Connor coming in as as chair, haven't they, for next year? Just talking about that, how the organisation evolves. And the diversity question is is interesting. We're seeing now a lot of these sports organisations that were created over a century ago, not just in the UK, but in America as well. I'm thinking about the Masters and various other places. And they look out of step, don't they? And quite often, well, they are out of step. So it's trying to, it's interesting to see how Claire Connor goes on there she's there's a bit of a row brewing about rachel hayhoe flint and a statue that claire connor wants to put in and then again the membership is resisting that again if, I don't know if that's a sign of just the narrowness of the perspective that you get when you are all white male and yeah 60 I mean, something absolutely kuma sankara is the president for the last two years it's a good choice and again they got claire connor as, as his successor, I'm sure she'll be very good. The presidents don't stay in office. They only stay in office for one year. Uh, Kumar Sankara stayed for two years because of the coronavirus. So they, they, they don't really, they're just a figurehead. And mm. any change they try to impose, I mean, takes, I mean, the MCC committee meetings, some of the money meet two or three times a year. So what chance have you got of affecting change in one year? Funnily enough, it's interesting with you mentioned the Masters and then the All England Club. And the MCC, there are a lot of similarities between the three. Three, they're all three are members' clubs. All three host iconic events. The difference is the MCC have got eighteen thousand members, and are held to account far more than the Masters and the All England Club. In Wimbledon, they built, they put roofs on stands with quite little, very little fuss, very little knowledge of what's going on. The, the Masters, you turn the Masters, they built a massive, great mansion of a press centre. In one year, and you know, all fantastic facilities, but quite how they do it, and whether human rights and whatever come into it, I'm not quite sure. The MCC, everything they do is, is uh, micro-analyze. Some of the members take great delight in in in, in doing so, but there's only a, only a fraction of them. Again, that's the difference. You have, let's say, 100 or 200 or 300 members who sort of are, whose lives are dominated dominated by MCC politics, and they. Appear on, they make post comments on the independent forum every day. Well, this is out of a membership of eight, 18,000, the vast majority of which, again, just put a tick on whatever the committee wants. Whatever, whatever the committee recommends, whether whatever it is, the vast majority of the membership wouldn't even look at the, what they recommend, just put a tick. I mean, it's the committee, it's good enough for me. So, what chance had a, a property developer have against this type of organization? I'm sure it'll change in time, but. It'll change a lot slower than a lot of other organisations. And at the same time, it's as you say, it's got a public role, a public-facing role. And symbols matter. You talk about the presidency the, and statues. We're into that debate because, again, the pushback to Claire Connor already has been that okay, well, Rachel Hayhoe Flint doesn't deserve a statue. And that's coming from a particular point of view. But actually, the point of a statue of Rachel Hayhoe Flint is completely the opposite of a closed membership um, organisation. It's to say, look, the future is about 
girls and women coming into this place. And it's about diversity of membership. And it, it's going to be very difficult to marry those two things together in terms of the, the representing cricket as it does, but also having some sort of public accountability. Yeah, another good point you made. The one statue of Rachel Hayhofer, I think it's not going to change anything. Or I think great if it's a statue of her. More statues, the better. If you walk around the MCG in Melbourne, a fantastic array of statues of mm. cricketers and uh, Australian rules footballers. As you said, as you say in the past, who would have thought the MCC would build such a sort of award-winning, sort of modernistic building as the, the media centre was? But these are these are, don't change the narrative, I don't think. From your perspe- personal perspective, so is this a, is this personal? Because you, you obviously you, you, you've got cricket running through your family. Your dad was a professional cricketer, and you played cricket yourself, and you like cricket. Is there something about Lords and this story that has got to you? It's got to me over the last two years. I spent a lot of time talking to people and researching it, but not at the start. I just thought it was an interesting project. As we swear, I had to retire couple of years earlier than I would have wanted to. So once I recovered, I still had a bit of energy left. And so I wanted something to get my teeth in. And it wasn't a sort of money-making um, situation, although luckily enough, the book sold pretty well so far. It's had fantastic publicity. Now, the MCC, that's interesting. Over my working life, I wrote about the MCC. Yeah, admittedly, <laughs> probably in a negative way, because personally, I don't like that type of organisation and old-school tie type of setup but i didn't want it to be a, a the way i talked about it since suggests that i supported charles rifkin which certainly isn't the case and you know even now you know you, i can see both sides of the both sides of the story but i just don't like the way the mcc go about things with the sort of committees or the way they they're, they're elitism you know they are seriously you know they regard themselves as a bit special which is fair enough but you've got to be far more open than they are. Far, they've got to communicate better. And I hope if this book does anything, is some of the, which have fortunately so far positive reviews have said, is that maybe it could help bring a catalyst for change. They're not allowing it in the club shop. I saw that I put in the newsletter this week about your the publisher lining St John's Wood Station with your covers of your book, which I thought was quite a smart move. Given yeah. they're, they're not the MCC is not letting it in their shop, are they? No, no. I think that's pretty predictable. A book that lays bare some of their incompetence being sold within laws. But funnily enough, the Oval said they'll stock it when their shop opens in June. And it was a great coup by the publisher, Richard Charkin, a mentor publisher, who saw the opportunity to secure for the fortnight. So all the posters going up and down the, the tube, which is a bit surreal. When I, I must admit, I went up and down a couple of times. So that's not right. But uh, <laughs> uh, no, that was a great marketing coup by. By, by Richard. How did you find writing the book, the process? Quite hard. I mean, as, as I'm so used to writing snippets, so seven or eight so small snippets a day, so 700 words, and this is 115,000. So it's a different... Yeah, I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed, yeah, I enjoyed almost everything about it, apart from people who, who didn't want to be interviewed. That annoyed me a bit. But I've listed those who didn't want to talk at the end of the book, because I think that says as much as the ones that did talk. Who, who are they? The, 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 just give us a couple of the names. Oh, Angus Fraser, Mike Gatting, Mike Brearley, all, all cricketers. Sir John Major didn't want to talk. MCC Secretariat didn't. Various people inv- involved in the story. But then again, a lot of the people 
were kind enough to give me their time and which I, I was very grateful for. Was there a, do you think there was, there was a sort of three line whip put out? Oh yeah, I know there was. I approached various MCC guys, including some of them who were involved on the other side. One of them, Robert Ebden, who's taking all the plaudits for the new stand. He, in fact, at one stage, he's the project manager for the Vision for Lords, which was a combination of Charles Rifkin and the MCC. Now he's very much in the, the other camp. I approached him. He didn't. He didn't want to talk, and he approached. They asked Guy Lavender, asked permission to Guy Lavender. Guy Lavender said no, he'd rather he didn't. But then I said, could I send you some questions? He said, yes, well, I could. So I sent him a load of questions, which he refused to answer. Well, didn't reply. That's the case with a number of people. But I think you get that in any sort of, they didn't have to speak to me. There was no financial inducement. They probably saw the negative side rather than anything positive. So I'm grateful for people like Oliver Stocken, who was the bet noir of Charles Rifkin throughout this process, Justin Dowley. Was this a story that you'd covered over the years as you were in the Daily Mail column? Yeah, absolutely, but small bits of it, mainly the sort of crumbs off the table of Ivo Tennant of the Times, who covered it religiously for numerous years. But no, I, I, in fact, looking at the sort of documents I received, I was getting quite a few mentions of what I'd written at the time, and I didn't realise it caused a lot of fuss inside it. I saw written one paragraph and there's a whole committee meeting about it and that type of thing. I didn't realise until I, you know, I was kindly by a variety of sources given numerous sort of committee meeting documents and sort of uh, email exchanges, whatever. I've sort of written the book the way I have because I wanted it to be a historical, I don't know, there's not much of me in it. I wanted it to be a sort of historical record of a certain time and which people go back to and that's why I've done a lot of it of sort of committee meetings, sort of blow by blow. So you can't odds with that type of contemporaneous document. Any more in the pipeline? Uh, no, I've, I've discovered that I finished writing this book in November. And since then, I've been working just as hard at making sure it gets to the sort of finishing line, all the production, all the pictures and that type of thing, cartoons. And now I'm starting to sell it. I'm appearing things like this. I'm really grateful for this opportunity and others I've had. And a couple of book festivals, that type of thing. So it's the selling of the book is just as full time as, as, the, as the writing of it. What do you make of the book publishing world? It's a peculiar world in some ways. In terms of timelines are still pretty 19th century sometimes. That's a very uh, interesting. I didn't know much about it. In fact, Mensch Publishing, who kindly made me an offer. Very, that sort of, the quality of the actual book is really pleased with it. It looks really good. The print looks really good. The cover looks good. And they have a, it's run by Richard Charkin, who's a, a sort of, a big figure in the publishing world. He set up his own, he was with all the big companies in, in, in big jobs. And he set up his own sort of niche operation whereby he basically controls everything himself. And also there's no sale and return. He's seen, he, he was one of the first to see that books are, are mainly now sold on online. So if somebody orders a book, they pay for it. They don't, a bookshop can't order 50 or 60 books and then give back the ones they don't sell. They just have to order the ones they they have to pay full price, well, or discount, whatever the price, they have to pay it up front. Uh, so he knows where his finances are, and he's come up with this uh, fantastic thing with the posters. He spent some money, well, good for him in that respect. So he's really backed the book really well. No, it's an interesting thing. I didn't realise that all the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff you have to have to go through for a book. Uh, it was read by the libel lawyer, 
who thought, having had 40 years of trouble with lawyers over what I'd written, I was pretty careful, but even so far, so good on the reliable front. But that's why, again, I, I've concentrated on the documents. You, you can't odds with them. He's your old mate, isn't he? A libel lawyer, surely. You must, you must let you just know a few. Well, yeah, the Daily Mail and the Daily Express libel lawyers were my mates. Listen, Charlie, good luck with it, and hope to see you on these one of these literary um, festivals yes. soon. Thanks so much, on the circuit. Thank you very much indeed. Really enjoyed chatting. With you. No problem at all. Cheers. Wow.